You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. Lindsay, what are you doing? <laughs> what, what are you doing? Sorry. I'm looking at my hair. Would you? That's why you have a mirror, not Josh and me. <laughs> it's, face, it's my FaceTime mirror. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, mercy. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Hola. And Brent Leatherwood. Good day, y'all. And uh, later in the show, those are some great hellos, by the way. I got to tell you, that was some really quality stuff there. Later in the show, we're going to be talking to a special guest who is one of our very dear friends, uh, Dan Darling. We're excited for that conversation later in the show. But so we can get into it and talk about the week. Lindsay, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Okay, guys. So a couple things that we're focusing on this week. First off, we have an article by Casey Huff. He's a pastor in Houston, and he just talks about how other pastors can shepherd their people through the suffering that's happening in the midst of the coronavirus. So he titles it, Three Ways to Lead Christ's Sheep Through the Valley of the Shadow of COVID-19. So he just gives some points of things to focus on as pastors are leading their people. Um, And then next, we have an article by Erica Anderson. She talks about how the quarantine is actually an opportunity for churches to emerge stronger. And of course, we know as the church The Lord has told us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The Lord is building his kingdom, even in the midst of not being able to meet together in person. But she says, she has a paragraph that says this. I thought it was really good. It wasn't Sunday morning that did the trick. It's not Sunday mornings alone that will do the trick now, especially given that many churchgoers only attend once or twice a month. The Sunday service, a quartet of monthly touch points, can be a foundation for ministry, but the integrated depth of daily community, service, prayer, and life together will be what leads to a thriving church and to the Lord adding to our numbers. So just a focus on calling the church to do things beyond just a Sunday morning in order to invest in their community and in their neighbors. What I like about what Erica is saying here actually picks up on a thread of a conversation we've been having um, around the office via Slack, our internal communication app. But one of our colleagues had said this morning what he's wondering if in this season, if actually some of our churches that have a really strong developed sense of kind of a communal spirit will actually emerge through this in many ways, unscathed. And um, that's probably talking about a lot of our our rural churches, our smaller churches, which are the backbone of the Southern Baptist Convention. But I just thought that was an interesting thought, and it seems like Erica is picking up on on that same theme. And finally, we have our co-host, Josh Wester, uh, with an article about religious liberty. And religious liberty has been making the rounds on the Twitter and the social medias lately, whether it's people saying that we need to lay aside religious liberty uh, right now in the midst of the pandemic, or it's people uh, highlighting the importance of religious liberty, such as Josh. So Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this article? I wrote this article because uh, at the URLC, you know, we're an extension of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so we come at all of the issues that we address from a Baptist framework. One of the things that is a fundamental, uh, it is a key distinctive of the Baptist faith, is religious liberty. And going all the way back uh, to the foundations uh, of the 
Baptist movement back in the early 1600s, uh, religious liberty has been one of those defining markers of what it means to be a Baptist. And so as we have uh, during the coronavirus crisis, uh, been watching state and local governments and churches try to find uh, find the balance where churches are able to operate and minister effectively while still trying to exist in in a way that works with the CDC's guidelines and, and the things that are appropriate for social distancing, uh, that's raised a lot of questions. And there have been clear cases in certain areas where local governments have overstepped and been too strict uh, in terms of restricting churches' abilities uh, to to do kind of fundamental, basic things. And so I, I wrote about this just to try to reinforce why this doctrine is so important to Baptists. Um, probably the biggest thing that we would say uh, for those who are asking questions about why aren't you saying more, why are you saying the things you're saying, is that we recognize at the ERLC that we have a responsibility during this, you know, during this time of crisis, we have a responsibility to try to help all churches do everything we can to safeguard and protect public health. And so that means that we are, uh, while we are being very vigilant in trying to protect religious freedom, we are doing all that we can uh, to try to help promote churches and local governments and state governments uh, cooperating and working together effectively in order to safeguard public health. And so anyway, that's that's some of what I wrote about in this article, in addition to kind of covering uh, the Baptist perspective on, on religious freedom and why it is so important. And Josh, what I really appreciate about uh, this piece is that you're very clear to say, look, just because you are a religious person or in the Christian sense, just because you hold a Bible doesn't mean that you get to break all the rules. Instead, what we should understand as Christians is that this should cause us to be a good player in this moment who's trying to advocate for the best of all of our society. And so I just, I appreciate your heart about this and and, uh, why religious liberty is important in a time of pandemic or in a time where everything's completely normal. It's a really important article. So we're thankful that you wrote it, Josh. Of course, on a lighter note, you told listeners that you would keep it brief. That's not really your strong point on this podcast, but you yeah, know. That's totally Pre- fair. Preachers are going to preach. Preach is going to preach. That's right. So Brent and Josh, that is your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And um, yeah, you're right. Brevity is not a strong suit. But anyway, moving on quickly, uh, Brent, tell us what you're looking at in the world of culture this week. Well, it was another busy week in culture. So uh, starting on kind of the coronavirus front, there's a few reports that I thought were really interesting uh, for our audience. So one is cell phone data that is coming out of Easter weekend. So uh, a lot of us probably don't even realize it, but we just provide tons and tons of data to cell phone operators, social media, folks digitally. So most of it is anonymous. But one of the interesting things that has come out of that was um, when people stopped going to church. The Washington Post looked at this cell phone data, and they found that Americans' attendance at uh, religious services on Sundays began dropping pretty dramatically in March. And basically, it led to that churchgoers in every state across the Union Uh, stayed home on Easter, which I think is just really interesting. Georgia actually clocked in with the largest percentage drop in church attendance through Easter weekend. And I think, again, that just shows that uh, Christians have been actually at the forefront of social distancing guidelines. Yeah, 
Brent, that's striking. And when you think about, uh, well, actually, Dr. Moore, in his article that he posted on Easter for at, at Christianity Today, he talked about that, you know, just kind of uh, anticipating empty churches on Easter Sunday and and the meaning of that. So if you missed that, we'll link to that in the show notes. That would be a, a great thing for people to go back and check out because it, it, it spoke to kind of the spiritual aspect of this, what we're seeing here is it was an actual reality. Mm. Well, I'm glad you brought up that point. Brent, because when I first saw this story in our culture section on our show notes, I was thinking, well, why, why is this a story? Because is it the data? Because we know that we would be at home because we're supposed to be at home, you know, like, but I feel like um, by you saying that Christians have helped lead the way in social distancing efforts. And I think it's the stark reality that this pandemic has caused us to change up our lives in ways that we have not seen before. Um, another report, and I thought this was interesting in light of the fact we are here towards the end of April. April is Second Chance Month. Our partners over at Prison Fellowship do a great job highlighting this for churches and providing resources for how to serve vulnerable populations, be it victims of crime, those who are part of the the justice system and affected by the justice system. Well, so this one was interesting. 73% of inmates at an Ohio prison have tested positive for coronavirus. And look, I think we've talked before, there are vulnerable populations that maybe just don't leap to the front of your mind. This is This is one of them. Um, so there are a number of cases here, and I just think it's interesting as Ohio weighs reopening, which it looks like they're going to start doing next week, just like many other states, it's going to be interesting how they deal with numbers that increase just like this Ohio case. Well, and one of the points that you have in here is that the, the large number of positives for the coronavirus is due to the fact that there's an aggressive testing program which that's many right. have talked about needing throughout the United States. That's right. And I'm going to say a buzzword here that's really important to our friend Joshua Wester. So every state is going to handle this sort of phased reopening just a little bit different. Josh, what's that called? Yeah, Brent, you're talking about federalism, which is, you know, one of the most important things. Of, that's right. That's right. And uh, and I love it because situations on the ground are different in different places. And so it makes all uh, the sense in the world uh, for our approach to be in view of having control on the ground at the most local level possible. So that another word for that is subsidiarity. Uh, and so this really makes sense to me, this kind of phase reopening and giving a lot of control uh, to to governors and then even down to at the mayor, uh, mayoral and, and county level uh, to determine what they're going to do in terms of phases of reopening. That's right. A, a little, little civics 101 for our audience here. Yes, Lindsay. That's good. I need to go back to civics class. I was just going to say yesterday I watched the mayor for Nashville talk about uh, reopening and the different phases and when we're going to try to start that. And it just is so, it's surreal that entertainment, sports, going back to work isn't even until phase four. And so just to see, just to hear his warnings too, that if we get a rise in coronavirus cases, that we have to go all the way back to square one, just not something that in reality, I think we thought would take so long. That's right. To my point about how each state is handling this a little bit differently. So there was a report on Thursday that Texas is looking at budget cuts to the state budget as deep as 20%, which is a, a huge cut in uh, funding in that state. And who knows what is going to happen in other states. Speaking of other, other states, CNN came, came out with a report highlighting 
the different states that require you to wear a face mask or a face covering in public. Yeah, that's something we talked about last week. It seems such a a striking picture to think about life here in the United States uh, for people to be leaving their homes wearing these, you know, face coverings or face masks. Because uh, for for us, that is just a totally foreign idea. It's something that, like, when I think about people wearing a face mask, I typically like default to like old westerns where you have like a you know a bank robber who comes in with a bandana covering his mouth so he can kind of mask his identity. Uh, but that is not something that that Americans are accustomed to at all. And it's going to be, uh, I, I think it's going to be, again, you know, to use Lindsay's words, surreal to experience this over the next weeks and months uh, here in the United States. Well, I went out to Target this past weekend and I had Hold a... On. Um, I'm not surprised at all that you went out to Target. I just wanted to say the first thing was, been, I went out to I, Target. I haven't been to Target this whole time. And I broke down and finally went to pick up something, but I don't have a mask. I just ordered one, but I wore a scarf and I felt wrong. I felt like a bandit going into this store. It just feels <laughs> so wrong, but it's it's the right thing to do, but it's just so foreign to us. Well, I'll say that our friend Charles Smith, who was on the podcast not that long ago, said, uh, I think he posted on Twitter and said that his wife reported back that going to Target with a face mask on just takes a lot of the joy out of her Target trips. And so, you know, do with that what you want. So Brent, you mentioned seven states. What are those states? So the states that are highlighted in this article are New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Hawaii, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. And to your earlier point, Lindsay, there are probably going to be certain uh, municipalities or cities like Nashville that recommend also uh, utilizing masks. And so that's that's just going to be something that is probably unique to each of our own experiences wherever we are and, and uh, for those of us or those of the folks in our audience. One thing I also wanted to highlight is perhaps a preview of things to come. So Vice President Pence spoke at the U.S. Air Force Academy graduation uh, this past week, and it was just interesting. They had put out the chairs. uh, They were six feet apart for all the cadets that were graduating, and um, all the folks that were up on the, the stage were socially distanced as well. Uh, He was greeted on the tarmac by the governor of Colorado, who was wearing a face mask, uh, that just may be a preview of things to come as certain states look at reopening. On the domestic front, uh, President Donald Trump this week said that he is going to sign a um, an executive order that temporarily halts immigration into the United States. It was clarified a little bit later in the week it's going to be a 60-day ban. Now, administration officials said that the order wouldn't make any substantial changes to the current U.S. policy. Why is that? Because even without an executive order, the administration has already all but ceased nearly every form of immigration into the United States. Uh, Most of the visa processing has been halted and nearly, well, really no one can apply for a visa to visit or move to the United States right now. Elsewhere um, on the economy, further signs that this recession that we're probably very clearly in uh, is extending. Another 4.4 million Americans on Thursday filed for unemployment benefits. That staggering number means we are nearing 30 million Americans in just the past few weeks uh, who have lost their jobs. So Brent, is that what they mean when they say first-time filings? Like these are people who are filing for unemployment the the first time? The very first time. So these numbers are on top of the previous weeks. And so we mentioned this last week. Lindsay was the one that called attention to this. But 
just to further cement this for you uh, in your mind. So over the last 10 years, the uh, American economy has created 22.2 million jobs. Over the last five weeks, we have lost now 26.5 million jobs. And as that person was commenting online, they said this represents a complete implosion of the employment situation due to coronavirus. It's just unreal. Yeah. And we I mean, we should say it is unreal. And we should say that, you know, none of us are economists, but we recognize that, you know, some of these jobs that are represented here in these numbers are jobs that are furloughed. Hopefully, you know, many of them are going to be able to return to work as, you know, as the economy is reopened, even in phases. But we recognize that for a lot of these people and perhaps for millions and millions of them that they're not going to have jobs to return to. And this is kind of, I mean, this is for for millions of Americans upending the life that they were uh, living before this thing started just six weeks ago or so. Yeah, because even as you mentioned the phases, Josh, you just think about it, like restaurants, so maybe waiters and waitresses hoping to get their jobs back. They're like here in Tennessee, they're going to open restaurants at half capacity when they open. So it's not everyone's getting their job back. They're not going to make the same amount of money that they made before. So uh, it's just, it's going to be something that goes on for the long haul. And I'm really interested to see, and as we talk about in the weeks and months to come, what the overall effect on our economy is. Yeah. And that, that uh, certainly brings to mind for me, uh, I want to be mindful about and prayerful for our um, Southern Baptist pastors and ministers who are going to be helping individuals and families uh, navigate this really hard season. And so they are on the front lines in so many ways that I think most of us just can't even appreciate. Uh, and, and this is just going to further their mission as, as ministers. And so uh, we're really thankful for you and our churches for the way that they are serving members of their congregation right now. I thought this piece was interesting in the Wall Street Journal. Um, as the coronavirus spreads and as we are dealing with um, economic numbers like this, there are citizens that are looking to leave kind of more urban areas. Dan Darling, who we'll have on the show later, even wondered aloud this week whether there's going to be kind of a, a new uh, fleeing from the cities. And that's exactly what the Wall Street Journal reported on. Realtors are noticing that demand seems to be picking up for people to looking to relocate out of their cities. All right, so moving on to cultural things. So probably a number of us who are privileged and fortunate to be able to do our work from home, uh, probably a number of your meetings have turned into Zoom meetings. And Axios is reporting this week that Zoom fatigue is real. Anybody feeling that? Yeah, I um, I hesitate to even acknowledge that that's a real feeling because it feels like such a you know a first world concern. Uh, but there is some kind of uh, it, it is exhausting to be on these video conferences, uh, you know, meeting after meeting, especially if they happen to occupy you know several hours of each workday. And I, I would just say probably the biggest thing for me, you know, to in, in terms of things I've been thinking about related to Zoom is the fact that anytime you're on a Zoom call, there's that kind, there's this kind of hypervigilance uh, that exists of like, wh what are you doing? Don't forget that people can see everything you're doing because it feels like being on a phone call where you're just talking to people, but you just have to, you know, I constantly have to remind myself and keep the screen like full screen to remind myself that pe hey, people can see you. So just be aware of that. You might be in a bedroom in your house, but people are looking at what you're doing. Yeah. And it's not just Zoom, it's screen fatigue for sure. Even though I'm still watching shows or movies, but I don't think I've ever felt 
more tired of screens in my life, which is not a bad thing. That's right. Well, one of the things I thought was really helpful that Axios pointed out uh, as we all kind of give ourselves a measure of grace is Zoom is probably exhausting right now because everything is exhausting in this moment. Uh, We have all transitioned to a completely different kind of life. And uh, that certainly is, uh, that can be exhausting. Uh, Last night, Thursday night, the NFL draft happened in the midst of the coronavirus moment. It went virtual. And it's certainly an interesting experiment as sports try to grapple with this new reality. Uh, The NFL commissioner was basically doing things from his basement and announcing picks and players had their phones ready to show people that they were celebrating it it was interesting and then finally one thing i wanted to highlight is mcdonald's mcdonald's is giving first responders and healthcare workers free thank you meals which i thought was really helpful and just another sign that our society is pulling together to meet this moment you know what i didn't eat mcdonald's for years cuz i was on a health kick when I was a little younger, but I have since gotten free and I've been eating McDonald's again. And I just, it's just good. Their Coke is good. Their burger hits the spot sometimes. Their fries, um, their fries have gone downhill. Their chicken nuggets are good. Anyway, so McDonald's, this is just more reason to eat McDonald's. Lindsay, you were you were on your way to a real McDonald's infomercial there. I mean, that was like almost a paid advertisement quality until you. Well, hopefully they'll send me a check in the mail. Fries. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, just, just to be clear, McDonald's does not sponsor our podcast, but we would love to have a conversation with them about doing that. Uh, because <laughs> yes, we basically, would. <laughs> Lindsay, you just went down their menu. <laughs> I did. <laughs> All right. Well, Lindsay and Josh. That's your look at This Week in Culture. So now we're about to talk to our friend and colleague, Dan Darling. Dan has, uh, for each one of us, been someone who has been a great friend, a great mentor, and he's been instrumental to our work here at the ERLC uh, for more than six years now. And it was announced this week, Dan, that you are uh, going to be transitioning from your role at the ERLC to uh, a new job or new opportunity at NRB, which is the National Religious Broadcasters. And we'll let you tell our listeners a little bit about that. Uh, But if you could, while you're introducing yourself, tell us not only a little bit about yourself, but what's God teaching you right now in this season of life? and ministry as you're making these kind of huge changes in your life? Well, it's an interesting time, right? I mean, on the one hand, I'm stepping away from six and a half years at the ERLC, which has been just a great time. And it's amazing to see what the Lord has done. You know, been able to to kind of equip pastors and church leaders to advocate for Southern Baptists and really build something that's been fun. And then we're also in this weird time of a pandemic where we're just kind of not sure what the future looks like. And all working from home and all that. Uh, but I am excited about going to uh, NRB. I, I think, you know, I've I've been in some form of communications my whole life uh, in terms of, you know, I, I've thought about it like words have kind of been what I've done for most of my life, like whether preaching or writing or leading communications, editing, all that stuff. And so it it's kind of makes sense for me to be going where I'm going. And really, I'm excited about kind of equipping the next generation of Christian communicators. It's bittersweet, you know, anytime you you leave something that you love, 
you know, a job that you love and, and do something new. But it's also a time of challenge of like, okay, how's the Lord going to use me in this new season? Dan, I just have to say that I have personally been uh, worked under you. You've been my direct boss, and it's been such a joy. And one of the things that I know that you love is keeping an eye on things happening in the culture. And I always enjoy what you have to say about it. So this podcast focuses on Christians and culture. And can you tell us particularly what you're paying attention to right now? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm paying attention. I mean, I think just I'm curious the long-term ramifications of COVID-19 and this unprecedented moment we're in. It feels a little bit, it's apples and oranges, but it feels a little bit about like 9-11 in the sense of like, you know, we came back from 9-11, but it changed in terms of our security infrastructure. It changed what we do at airports. It changed what we do when we get into public places. Will this moment have that kind of impact uh, on the health side? And what will the economic ramifications be we've there's not really a template for this in previous recessions there was kind of structural issues in the economy that kept us from having us a quick rebound this could be different may not be i don't know but more importantly i think the church uh church is rolling back into services and what what does this look like for the church between now and the time we have a vaccine uh, i just think it's a really interesting moment i think personally spiritually i'm praying that you know out of this time there could be kind of spiritual movement, uh, spiritual revival, awakening among God's people and, and perhaps a people turning to God. I think we're all recognizing how vulnerable we are. I mean, has there ever been a time in the world before where like the whole world was basically at home and there's nothing going on in our streets and, and uh, there's massive unemployment? Are people going to realize how vulnerable we are, that we're not really self-made, that we're not as strong as we think we are and maybe turn toward God? I don't I don't know. I, I pray that's, that's the case. And so this is kind of the the things I'm thinking about. Just your answer right there with our second question just shows why I was kidding before, but it's true. You are kind of a spokesman for human dignity. Uh, and that topic has always been important to you. And I've so enjoyed the ways that you have ensured that we talk about that at the ERLC and particularly with your book, The Dignity Revolution. That's one of my favorite books that any of our colleagues have written. You actually have a new book coming out soon. So tell us about that. And why did you write that book? So yes, I have a new book. It's called uh, Away With Words, Using Our Online Conversations for Good. This is kind of uh, just a look at the way we communicate in the digital age. How should Christians interact online? Uh, there's been a lot of good books on screen time and digital Sabbaths and handling all that with your family. I think those are really important. This is really not what I'm doing. The case I'm making is, look, these tools like social media and the internet and blogging and everything online, these are here to stay. Like we're, we're not going back. We're not going to suddenly become Amish. So how do we interact in this space? And, and it's interesting to me, the Bible has a lot to say about words. Ours is a spoken faith. Like Jesus uh, is described as the word of God. In Hebrews, it talks about how this is how God is communicating in these times. We have the written word of God that is God speaking to us. In Genesis, it talks about God you know, speaking the world into existence. And and so we have a God who speaks. We're made in the image of a God, uh, of God, and part of how we image him is how we communicate. So, you know, it's very important that we think about this. And so uh, I just kind of wanted to think through how do Christians do this well? This is not me saying I've always done it well. <laughs> in fact, I share some stories about ways I have not communicated well online or um, had to apologize or had to take things down or just, you know, looking back, some things I've done. 
but just uh, how do we navigate this in the, in this environment? So I'm, I'm excited about it. Hopefully it'll, it'll be a help to, uh, to Christians. Yeah. We're looking forward to that, Dan. You're a great and prolific writer. So I really enjoy the things that you write. So you, speaking of writing, you shared an article on your site about your transition to the NRB. And um, you talked about some things the Lord has taught you through your time at the ERLC. And we would just love for you to tell us and tell the listeners a little bit about some of those things. I'm glad you asked that. I mean, look, I, I've learned so much here. I've flourished so much in the last six and a half years. I mean, in the summer of 2013, Dr. Moore had just become president of ERLC. I was very excited about that. I had followed him. I had been influenced by his writing. I had interviewed him actually a couple of times, but I had no idea that he was like, hey, I'd like Dan to work on my team. It's really funny. I think we'd interacted a few times. Apparently, he had read some of the things I'd written about Christianity in the public square, which is exciting, but scary. Like you want people to read your stuff, but not like a theologian like Russell Moore, because you're like, what did I get wrong here? But they reached out to me and it was just, you know, the Lord, I think really, you know, brought me here to Nashville to to work here. And I think a couple of things I've learned. I think one of the things I've learned, I mean, I probably learned more theology from Russell Moore than anybody else. You know, I've had car rides with him where I've just learned so many things. I asked him a lot of questions about eschatology, about ethics, about, you know, studying the Bible. Uh, I also have learned You know, the one thing I've learned from him is how to be, he is very convictionally Baptist in his bones, but also very um, open-handed toward other Christians, right? So he's taught me how to, how to like do that well to where, you know, in the nature of our work, we work with a wide variety of denominations. And I think that's been a good thing to learn. And, And I also think, you know, this has been an interesting season in terms of the public square, like the last six years, uh, a lot of shifts in American culture. How do we stand for what we believe? How do we message uh, the truth of the gospel? How do we love our neighbors and speak up about these things, but also do it in a way that's convictionally kind and our words are redemptive? I think those are the things I've learned during this time. Man, that's good, Dan. So one of the things that we love about you is your love for the city of Chicago. Whether it's the Cubs or the Bulls or just the Chicago land culture, um, you you just do that well. Uh, and there are times where people will maybe even dare to insult or disagree with you about Chicago and the culture that's there. And you often go on what we lovingly call around the office a cranky Yankee rant. Yes, that's right. Dan, just just give us a sense of your love of Chicago and how that has spawned your your cranky Yankee-ness. Yeah, so it's funny because when I do those, when I get off on one of those things, you know, it's it's just like natural. But it's one of those things where like, if you asked me to reproduce it, I couldn't. So it's it's kind of like, you know, you create this create this art and then just see how people enjoy it. So the cranky Yankee stuff is... It's just art form, <laughs> but um, right. So who, who's who's better, Dan, <laughs> Jordan or LeBron? Oh gosh, it's not even a question. I don't actually hate LeBron. I think he is special and one of the all-time greats. But like, you know, there's no question. Jordan's number one. Here's the deal: by the third year, Jordan's third year, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird were calling him the greatest of all time by his third year, and LeBron is great. But we're at the end of his career, and we're saying he might possibly be. So 
I, I think that tells you everything you need to know about the two. And Dan, but, Dan, who has better food, Chicago or the South? See, I, I stepped on that landmine like several years ago. Most of my colleagues are Southern or from the South. And I just offered the idea that maybe there is good food above the Mason-Dixon line. And it was it was just roundly criticized. I've come to kind of amend it, having been in Nashville for six years and loving Southern cuisine. So I, I don't make that mistake anymore. But I'm here to say Chicago has great food. That's, that's all I'm here to say. I'm here for that. So what I... Dan, when I think about it, and I hate to go back to it, but I just can't let it go, man. So the cranky Yankee thing for a second. Um, you know, if you don't know Dan, one of the things that you need to know is that, like Lindsay said, is incredibly prolific, and he's always got a million plates spinning, a million writing projects going on. He produces content uh, faster and better than almost anyone that I know. But one of Dan's, you know, things he's not wild about uh, are productivity tips of other people who are oftentimes less prolific or productive than Dan is, uh, telling him how to get things done. And so anyway, uh, our friend, uh, Andrew Walker, who's at Southern Seminary now recently tweeted and said, Hey, if you want to help Dan Darling out during the shutdown, send him all your productivity tips. And many people either to just kind of stick, you know, uh, to rub it in or to, uh, you know, maybe just genuinely be helpful, decided to just pile on Dan's Twitter feed and drop their wisdom for how to get things done <laughs> yeah it's weird like and it was so funny it's it's funny i get cranky about it because like i do think there are really good ways to learn how to be more productive and there's people that are better th at that than me but i i am firm in my conviction that you could get to a place where your productivity is all about your like the thing you're actually producing is just more productivity tips and i'm just sitting here saying okay well you well you're doing a, a thousand productivity tips i'm actually producing stuff over here. Like I'm actually, I'm actually getting stuff done, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I may not be journaling every hour of my day, but I'm actually writing stuff anyways. That I, I go off on that. And that's right. Irrational way sometimes. <laughs> All right, people. Well, I was just trying to get Dan started to see if we could get a, a mini cranky Yankee rant. I and mean, you got a little taste of what that's like just then. So, uh, Dan, we just want to say thanks so much uh, for taking time to join us on the podcast. Look, all of us are so incredibly sad uh, to, to see you uh, depart from our everyday office culture, but we're grateful that even at NRB, you're going to be staying uh, there in Nashville. So we'll still be able to see you for lunches and for events and just, you know, to continue being friends. You have blessed our lives immensely uh, and through your friendship and through your ministry and we are grateful to god for you so thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today a hearty amen well, thanks guys yes thank you dan thank you all and it's been a joy to, and a pleasure to work with all of you like i've been sharpened in many ways and the, i guess the one thing i was going to add to what i've learned is work with people that are way smarter than you and it'll just kind of like rub off and 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 help you grow but i've i've really enjoyed it it's bittersweet but we will see each other whenever we're allowed to actually see each other again exactly <laughs> well hey thanks dan we're living in uncertain times. All of our lives have changed as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, and none of us know what the future holds. How do we begin to think through recent events and learn to cope with them? In a new book called Where is God in a Coronavirus World, Oxford professor John Lennox examines the coronavirus pandemic and shows us how the Christian worldview can help us make sense of recent events. Lennox reminds Christians that we have a sure and certain hope to cling to when everything around us changes. Go to thegoodbook.com to pre-order now.
So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you the things that we've been talking about with one another. So Brent, tell us what's on your mind this week. So there was a helpful explainer that came out from the New York Times, and it basically was titled, Is the Virus on My Clothes, My Shoes, My Hair, My Newspaper? And basically what they did was they crowdsourced questions that people had about coronavirus and what steps do folks need to take to make sure it doesn't come in their home. Um, and so this is what they said uh, in the lead. Many people are fearful about tracking the virus into their homes, on their clothes, their shoes, etc. So we reached out to infectious disease experts, aerosol scientists, and microbiologists to answer reader questions. And honestly, the answers that they came back with were really helpful and reassuring um, because more than likely, it's not coming into your home, which is great. That is great. That is great. It's uh, what our... What our colleague Dan Darling would call uh, some good news. Some good news, absolutely. Which is exactly what we need in this moment. And so uh, that's really good, Brent. Mine, I got to tell you, is not actually going to add any value to your life unless you really like to watch things that are awesome. So one of our colleagues posted a video and we will link to it so you can see it. But basically, it is a compilation of stunt guys and stunt women uh, put together this video of them trading back and forth, basically stunt moves that it looks like they're holding their phones using their camera and uh, kind of trading back and forth, basically like, you know, stunt-like either kicks or punches or whatever, uh, but it's a, it's just two minutes of uh, absolutely mindless humor. And so uh, it resonated with me, though, because one of my like close friends from my hometown is actually a professional stunt guy who has worked on uh, you know s- some things that you might have seen. He was on the AMC series Turn. He was actually uh, in The Walking Dead, and he is you know still up and coming in his career as a stunt guy. So this video just drew my attention. But uh, yeah, again, just two minutes of mindless humor, and we'll link to it for you to check out. But Lindsay, what's on your mind? You know, I had to say, Josh, that I tried to watch some of that video, and I just thought it was a total guy video. <laughs> Someone put, put it in Slack and said, this doesn't disappoint. And I was like, eh, it's kind of disappointing. But it was interesting, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, but there, there were, to... I mean, there, there were two female uh, stunt people. It's true. It's true. It's true. Sorry, I shouldn't uh, poo-poo on your lunchroom segment. Okay, what I'm bringing to the lunchroom table is actually not something that I've watched yet, uh, so that might not be a good idea, Um, but I think it's safe. But something that I would like to crowdsource, ask our listeners about, something I'm interested in watching. So I've heard a lot of friends talk about this series called The Chosen, about the life of Jesus. And um, you can download The Chosen app, or I think you might be able to watch it on YouTube. I'm not sure. Several friends have said that they've enjoyed it. Um, So I've been interested in it, thought that maybe me and my husband could watch it. If you're a listener and you've seen it or you've heard something about it, we'd love to hear from you. Just email info at ERLC.com and let us know about it. That's awesome. So thanks, Lindsay. And that brings us to our final section uh, before we sign off, which is the inbox. So why don't you tell us what's in the mail this week? So our question that we have for this week is, there's been a lot of conversation about Christians in the 2020 election. What resources would you recommend for Christians to think about this issue? Yeah, I would say as a as a baseline, uh, Dr. Moore's book, Onward, it was, uh, for me, uh, as a person who is a Christian who is very engaged uh, politically and, and definitely tries to think carefully about politics, Onward was one of the most helpful books that I've ever read in terms of applying the gospel to uh, not, not just cultural issues, but politics specifically and helping Christians think through that. So that's, that's the first one uh, that I would recommend. Brent, what would you say? Well, I would echo your uh, sentiments about Onward. So when in my previous professional capacity, 
capacity uh, that was specifically in politics when Dr. Moore's onward hit, I, I just thought it was just a great roadmap to how a Christian should think through politics, and it certainly affected my thinking about things. Another one that's come out a little more recently is How the Nations Rage, and that's by Jonathan Lehman. Uh, Lehman is the editorial director of Nine Marks, and he is an elder at his SBC church just outside of Washington, D.C., and I think what Jonathan Lehman does in that book is just a really helpful deep dive into understanding why things are partisan, why people have different worldviews and how that affects their politics, uh, just really helpful. And so I think it's a, a really good complement to what Dr. Moore is driving at uh, in the book onward. Hey, thanks, Brent. That's also really helpful. And uh, one final resource I would recommend is One Nation Under God by Bruce Ashford and Chris Pappalardo. Uh, Bruce was the uh, lead author on that book, and it is just a very short uh, introduction to the topics of Christianity and politics. And so if you are just starting out, you're looking for a very basic primer, this is the book that I would put in your hands. Uh, it is, if I remember right, it's just over 100 pages. It's a, it's a small book that has really, really uh, helpful information, and it provides a great introduction uh, to these topics for Christians. So those would be some of the resources that we would recommend. And uh, if you can't remember those, we've got them uh, linked there in the show notes for you to for you to check out. But just as a reminder, as we sign off here, we want to say uh, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. You can find links to all the things that we talked about today in the show notes. And as always, if you like the podcast, and you want to help us spread the word, uh, we'd really appreciate it if you would go into your podcast app and leave us a rating or a brief review uh, to lead the rating. Spoke to someone this week and just told them it takes literally about five seconds to do that. So it's not, uh, it is not very burdensome, uh, but we always appreciate uh, you taking the time to do that. And it helps other people discover the podcast. And so if you want to help promote it to even more people, you can share the episode on social media uh, and let people know you're listening. It helps more people discover it. But for Lindsay, Brent, and myself, uh, we want to sign off now and say thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We'll be back next week with more content.